A reading from Psalm 115, verses 1 to 11. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Oh, Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and shield. This is the word of the Lord. Powerful song, and we'll walk through these verses, so let's pray before uh, we hear what the Lord has to say to us through them. Father, we thank you that you are our shield and our help, as that declaration is made three times, uh, it reminds us how much we need to hear it. Help us not to trust in the idols of this age, nor to seek our glory but to seek your glory and thereby to find our life in you, in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. There's a phrase that some alpha athletes have been shouting to the world, I've noticed, in the last few years. When there's a, a highlight reel of a catch or a throw or a basket or a hit that's really spectacular, the athlete will yell into the camera and to the stands, I am him. <laughs> I am him. It's a newer thing. Now, there are a couple of comments to make about this. First, grammatically, it's incorrect. It is, I am he. I am he. I'm a lot of fun at parties. <laughs> but the more important thing to say about that, of course, is that we are not ever to seek to be the center of attention to seek glory for ourselves. And Israel was composed, we can assume, of, of many ordinary people, not looking to showboat. Some perhaps were. There were no cameras. Nonetheless, they were fallen. And like we, we are all tempted to say, they were tempted to say, I am him or I am he. I am her or I am she. This is the human uh, attraction and temptation. The secular writer David Foster Wallace admitted something very candid that we don't like to always come to grips with. He said, we rarely talk about our natural basic self-centeredness because it's so socially repulsive. 
But it's pretty much the same for all of us deep down. Now think about it. There is no experience that you've had that you were not at the absolute center of. That, again, is our draw and our temptation. But Psalm 115 sets out to change our focus so that we see God as the center of our lives and the center of everything so that we might say, God is he. God is him. And so this morning, we're going to break down this passage by looking first at verse 1. And we see there the theme of praise, or really petition, but it's praise. And that is directed toward God. And then we come to verses 2 to 8, which are a polemic that actually speak to the nations in actually a, a sarcastic kind of way. And then we come to verses 9 to 11, which is the proclamation, which are the words toward us or toward Israel that we would take seriously what the psalmist is saying here about our orientation and focus. And so first, praise. The psalmist is leading the people in worship. This is a, a liturgy, a back and forth. And he is calling them to direct their praise to God. And I think it's so interesting that he affirms a positive truth first by asserting a negative. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. You see, service to God shouldn't be about self-service. And yet, ironically, sometimes, even as we're serving God, what are we doing? We're really deep down serving ourselves, or we struggle with that. That earlier quote that I mentioned, we want to make ourselves the center of everything. It's hard not to. I get that. We wonder, why am I not getting the attention, the acclaim, or, or the follow-up that is due to me in my name? Well, the psalmist says, not. The word in Hebrew is low. It begins that way. Not. To us, may the preposition be directed toward God. And then the psalmist affirms the positive. To your name, not to ours, but to your name, God, give glory. Now, the Hebrew word for glory, it's a great word. It is kavod. And it signifies the weightiness of God, the significance of God, that God matters. It means that he is weighty in his being, that he is solid in his goodness, that he is radiant in his splendor. And so when it comes to God, there is an infinite amount of there there. And we're already seeing here that the psalmist is contrasting God to the fact that idols and the things we are apt to trust in are like vapor. But God is of the possible highest stature and beauty and yet I want you to note, even though I said this is a praise, it's really a petition. It is a prayer that God would glorify himself, not to us, but to your name. Give glory, God. Shine like the infinite light that you are and radiate your reality. I remember teaching our kids the children's catechism when they were little and here in this church and, and many of your kids. And the children's catechism begins, why did God make you and all things or everything? And the children would say uh, with the adults for his own glory. 
And that reflects this psalm. It reflects Isaiah 44. I am the first and the last, God says. And apart from me, there is no God and there is no good apart from me. But friends, here's the thing. We need, you and I need God to glorify himself. You see, if God is not great as the atheist philosophers of 20 years ago or say or ago or, or so were always saying, if God is not great, then our lives, our lives are meaningless. Our lives are pointless. And there's really nothing substantially and lastingly, enduringly great about our lives apart from God. And so the psalmist says, God, we need you to glorify yourself. The British preacher Charles Spurgeon said, if I might have but one prayer, it would be, O oh God, glorify thyself in your church and in the salvation of men and women. And yet the glory of God is more specific, the psalmist notes. It is relational. The psalmist says, give glory to your name on account of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Some of these themes have already been recounted in in our service, they were used in the pastoral prayer. Now, uh, if you're a person who has spent any time in our church, or will, and we hope you do in the coming months and years, you will come to find that we, we love a Hebrew word. <laughs> and the word here is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. And that is a word that is so rich that various Bible translations put it in different ways, and it all kind of puts together this tapestry of meaning of what Hesed is. Hesed is God's covenant faithfulness. It is his steadfast love. It is his mercy, his forgiveness. It is, what a beautiful word, his loving kindness. And Hesed is God keeping his promise to be, again, our God, to be God to us, to make us his people, to wipe away our sins, and to renew us. You see, God glorifies himself in his hesed by rescuing us, and that means that in Christ, friends, he fastens himself to us, he pledges his allegiance to us based upon what? Not our name, but his name. And it means that we, he will never let us go. So God's steadfast love is that he is promise-keeping that his love is long, that it is persistent. It refers to his devotion, the devotion that we do not deserve because we are so often unfaithful, but nevertheless have received. So we can say that there is substance there. There's plenty of there there when it comes to God. And I just want to pause here on this point to ask you, are you aware that all of life is fleeting apart from the God who is there, the God who is full of hesed, who is full of steadfast love and loving kindness and covenant faithfulness and a promise-keeping love directed toward you. Otherwise, all of life is fleeting. And that brings us really to the body of this psalm, which is the polemical section. The psalmist asks, and, and again, he is actually using some sarcasm here, he asks, why should the nation say, where is their God? One writer has said, this is a psalm for the congregation amid a world who trusts the gods that they have made and therefore the gods that they 
can manipulate. And we have to admit that we are tempted to be like the world in this endeavor. But see, the psalmist accentuates the flimsiness of humanity's attempts to live apart from God and, and to create their own gods or our own gods. And so often, fallen humanity wants to worship and adore and to trust a deification and exalting of what? The self. Notice again what the psalmist said at the beginning. Not to us, not to our name. And therefore, the inverse of that is an idol, which is something that is to us, that is about our name, that is about our glory. The psalmist said that we need to be different. The nations say, where is their God? We, we can't see him. We can't measure him. Uh, in the book, uh, The Gift of the Jews, Thomas Cahill, I read this many years ago, and it, there was a wonderful section, and other books have highlighted it, but he brought it out so well, that when Antiochus Epiphanes, this Seleucidian ruler who basically came in to ransack Jerusalem, uh, the Seleucid ruler, uh, the descendant of um, Alexander the Great, he came in and he wanted to see the God he was coming in to conquer, all this fame about the God of Israel. So he went into the temple to ransack the temple to see who the God of Israel was. And what did he find there? Nothing. He found no graven image. You see, the God who has made us and who inhabits the heavens cannot be seen or measured or manipulated. Now we'll see at the end that, of course, he has revealed himself in Christ, but there is no statue that conveys his likeness. But the world wants a genie in a bottle, the kind of God that we can manipulate and mold to our own liking. But the psalm says, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Not what we please, but what pleases him. And therefore, that means he is utterly free. Nothing outside our God constrains him or causes him to do what he does. And yet, thankfully, what pleases God, again, is to be merciful, is to be full of steadfast love to show his covenant faithfulness to his people. And so the God who can't be contained in the heavens that he made is contrasted in this section with the gods made by human hands. And the psalm here reflects Isaiah and Jeremiah by kind of going through and cataloging what these gods are like. And this is where he hits hard. They have mouths, verse 5. But they cannot speak. These gods are mute. They have no word for us. What's at the core of biblical revelation? Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Listen to your God. Your God speaks in his word. But these gods that are fashioned by our hands are mute. He has eyes. But he cannot see. He's blind. They're blind. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They're deaf. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They are senseless gods. And most of all, they have hands that cannot fashion anything, that cannot hold a hurting person. 
They have feet that cannot carry them along. You see, what the psalmist is saying with this crescendo of descriptions is these gods, our idols, can do nothing. They have no verb attached to them. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann has said that the would-be gods of the world are not a help, but they're a burden. We have to carry them. But the God of the scripture need not be carried because this is a God who carries, who bears our burdens and our sins, who comes to save us, who comes to pledge himself to us. Now again, we, we hear this kind of thing and it all sounds so ancient and remote, right? We're modern people. We don't have idols. Well, yes, we do. <laughs> we have all sorts of counterfeit gods, as it's been said. There are mimic gods. We pursue the things of this world as though they are ultimate and absolute, but they are false ultimates. We turn some things into everything. You do it and I do it. Uh, Tim Keller, many of you have read his book on idolatry, counterfeit gods. He, he wrote, an idol is anything that's more important to you than God, anything that captivates your heart and imagination more than God, anything that you seek to give you what only God can give. Uh, I could be here all day, as you know, listing the idols of our age and our hearts. You see, in our culture of narcissism, where we so often want to live for ourselves and our glory, our idol may be um, glorifying the self. That may be the prevailing passion, and all idols flow from that. We can think of the idol of entertainment, the idol of sports, the idol of wealth and power and sex. There's certainly the idol of technology and all that it can do for us, even as technology morphs into this thing that calls forth from us our allegiance. And we've often said um, in, in our church context that, that idols can be the, the best things in life that God gives to us, but things that are not meant to be ultimate. I know how tempting it has been throughout the years of our family life, to turn my family in, into an idol, to turn my kids and their successes into idols. But it's also been said that idols cannot bear our expectations and we cannot bear their limitations and imperfections. They will break our hearts even as we put pressure on them to be the gods they're not meant to be. But this psalm actually goes further. Note that it says in verse 8 that those who make them become like them. And so do all who trust in them. Do you see what that's saying, friends? That, that we become like the gods that we worship. As one writer has says, said, what people revere, they resemble. Either for ruin or for restoration. So in other words, if we worship lifeless gods, we will shape the world into a kind of culture of death. We, we become hopeless like the world. We become frustrated because the things of this world can't give us ultimate meaning. On the other hand, when we worship the triune God of love and covenant commitment, we become people of covenant commitment to each other. We are a people then marked by hesed and, and mercy and kindness. 
Now again, I want to drill down on these idols a little further. I, I think in our context, for many of us, perhaps for uh, the expectations we put on our kids at times, it can sometimes be the idol that um, we define ourselves by what we do. The idol of achievement. It is what we do and doing it well. It's been called the seduction of success. This past week, I read a, a testimony by a man named Francis Sue. And he was raised in a very secular home. Uh, and, and very early on in his life, he became aware of his sin. Uh, and one of the first events he recorded is his father disciplined him for being a brat, I bet, basically, he said. And to his own surprise, he, he bit his father in frustration. Well, his father was not pleased. Um, so this little boy at five years old was in the car crying with this overwhelming sense that he needed forgiveness, but no religious background, none at all. Uh, well, he began to think about, well, how do I make my life meaningful? And he discovered that he was very academic, and in particular, he excelled at math. So he worked hard at school. But in the midst of his academic studies and all that he gained from that, there was sort of a twin track that was going on in his life. His father uh, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, and, and perhaps worse, his mother was diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. And so as he faced this great suffering, he, he had this sense in life that, you know, what's it all leading to? What's it all about? And also, he just, as he looked at the world, he grew up with a fear about the possibility of nuclear annihil annihilation. He was a serious kid. And this is what he reflected on. He threw himself into math. Um, and he actually did so well that he went on to Harvard to earn a PhD there in mathematics. And he said, I was desperate to prove myself worthy of something to somebody. Folks, I've done that so many times in my life, I'm embarrassed to admit it. And I think you have too. Or at the pressure we put on our kids. He goes on to say, this writer, Francis Sue, the soul does not surrender to despair until it has exhausted all illusions. And that's a quote from Les Miserables. He was beginning to see the illusions of his idols. Well, in college, he was exposed to many Christians, folks who came around him, who, who shared the gospel with him in very humble and loving ways. And he began to see he didn't have to desert or abandon his intellect if he became a Christian, which he did. And over time, he... He embraced Christ. He took, as he called it, the leap of faith, but a very rational leap because he had thought through Christian faith so much. And so he still struggled with his parents' illnesses and his own struggle with depression sometimes. But reflecting earlier on his life, he said, this is how despair overtook me. I began to see the empty promise of achievement. Again, PhD at Harvard all the accolades. He said, getting good grades meant nothing in these scenarios of my parents being sick, of my own sin, of the world being full of brokenness. He said, work and relationships seemed meaningless. Achievement, success, happiness. What was it all for? Well, wow. 
those questions drove him to Christ. To see that trying to find the meaning in life and substance and ultimate reality in the things of this world and what we can accomplish that that was all illusory, but Christ is not. And on a personal note, for me, it's been such a great help to my faith over the years to remind myself how vain and empty life would be apart from Christ, that when I pursue the idols of my heart, they lead me nowhere. They lead me, leave me frustrated and even empty. And yet that's a place where we can come and be led to Christ as we realize there is no there apart from him. But in Christ, we find all that we need. And so we end this psalm with a petition, verses 9 to 11. You see, the God who cannot be accessed by the naked eye, the writer said, is our shield and help. And as we heard it so beautifully in the reading, the, the writer reminds Israel, he is your, their shield and help. God protects us from the worst enemies of our soul. Sin, not physical death, but eternal death. And God has radiated his reality through the person of Christ. You see, Jesus is the very Hesed of God who has come in person so that in him we see that God is faithful, that God is steadfast in his love, that God will keep his promises despite the fact that we break ours so often and have forfeited our right to know God. God loves to bond himself to us. Knowing that his steadfast love makes us feel secure and that nothing in this world, as Romans 8 says, can separate us from the love of God. Not nakedness, not famine, not death, not fire. You know, we, I'm sure you will have been just utterly riveted by what has been happening in Hawaii uh, this week. It is just unbelievable. It is astonishing. And it's a beautiful place. I know a number of you have been there. A number of you began your marriages there. We honeymooned there. And I remember when we went to Maui, I thought this is the start of a beautiful life. Everything feels right here. We're all right here. It's paradise. My daughter, Paige, uh, vacationed there about a year ago, six months ago, with friends. And I remember as her father, she loves to world travel. <laughs> I thought, I'm so glad she's in Maui. And she stayed there because it's such a beautiful place there. And it is. But we have been reminded this week, friends, that even here in, in one of the most wonderful gorgeous places on the earth. Paradise can go to an apocalypse within moments. The things of this world, the places of this world, the, the beauty of this world cannot be our shield. They will be taken from us in mere moments. Now this is not to say that, that God is in any way punishing people. It is rather to use this horrific loss as an opportunity to remind ourselves that only God is our shield and help. And that everything that we put our trust in, our, our longings towards, we say, this is what is solid. This is what will not fail me. If it's not God, you're wrong. 
even your families, even your health, even your marriages, can be taken from you by death. But Christ and his love for you will never be removed from you. You see, we worship the living God, the psalmist saying, and therefore we live. There is substance and meaning to our lives. There is glory to our lives, not glory that we bring upon ourselves, but as the Bible says, glory that we have in our union with Jesus. We matter because he matters and we are united to him. Let me bring you back to that believer now, Francis Sue, uh, who teaches mathematics at Harvey Mudd but he has a greater purpose. He says, the Christian framework suddenly made sense to my life. For the first time, I understood the necessity of grace. And he says, we try so hard to make ourselves righteous, to earn our digni dignity through morality and accomplishment. And yet none of this striving can heal us because there is no one who is righteous, no not one, that is a quote from Romans 3.10. And then he says, In God I have found rest from my meaningless striving for significance. And so friends, like this man, trust in God. Lean on him for what you most need. Recommit your life to him because he's worth it. As we're going to sing during communion, what can strip the seeming beauty from the idols of the earth, not a sense of right or duty, but the sight of peerless worth. Look to Christ by faith. Look to him in his word. He speaks to you. He's not silent. And behold the worth of Jesus. Only he can say, I am him. <laughs> I am he. Won't you trust me? Won't you devote yourself to me? Tim Keller said the only way to free ourselves from the destructive influence of counterfeit gods, of mimic gods, is to turn back to the true God, the living God, the only one who can forgive and fulfill us. The God who has shown himself in complete hesed, covenant faithfulness, steadfast love, and loving kindness, the love that will not be broken. That is the God of Hesed, that is Jesus. Turn to him. We're going to pray here before we go to the table, and I want to take a moment to pray for the victims of the Hawaiian fires and um, just pray that the Lord would fill them with the hope of Christ. So let's pray. Father, we pray that we would make this our prayer, not to us, not to us, and it, we know we need to say it, as the psalmist did, because like Israel, we often want to say it's all about us. It's our attention, it's our acclaim, it's our being the center of everything. But Father, we say not to us, but to your name be glory and give glory. We pray, Father, that you would Remind us, as this psalm, frankly, sarcastically does, that the idols that we create, even the good things that we fashion with our hands, can never be you. They are fleeting if we treat them as God. They will let us down. They will be burned. They will fail. They will die. 
they will show themselves to be imperfect and limit, limited. So, Father, as we see the futility of trusting idols for our shield, for our help, for our meaning, I pray that we would be like that man, Francis Sue, that we would see that striving for achievement, striving for our own righteousness, striving to make a name for ourselves just leaves us empty. But you will not. And so, God, we pray that you would be our satisfaction, our shield, and our helper. And, Father, today, in these moments, we pray for the victims in Maui. There have been so many who have experienced horrific loss. And our nation has seen a, a natural disaster unlike we've, we've rarely seen. And so as human beings are thinking about this and, and facing trial, we, we pray that we would all be aware of the fragility of life, how finite it is, how quickly everything that we trust in can be taken from us, turned to ash. God, we pray that you would comfort the mourning, that you heal the burned and the broken, and that you would help people in, in their despair and in the darkness to find the light of Christ, to find he might be their only shield when all else has been taken away from them. Father, bless them. And we thank you that through your word you help us to turn away from the idols, not just of the world, but we have to admit of our own hearts. Forgive us for saying, I am him, I am her, May we always say, not to us, but to your name, your glory, and it's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.